0: Good morning. We're working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. And as we've been saying, um, letters are two-way conversations. It's like listening to one end of a phone conversation. So before we listen to Paul and what he says let's remind ourselves of what's happening on the other side of the line in the lives of those to whom he's writing in the the city of Rome and to the church that exists there. Uh, We've been um, saying that Jews fell out of favor in Rome because of conflict between Jews and Jewish Christians. It became preheated and to the point that Both classes of Jews, Jews and Jewish Christians, were banished from Rome about 40 AD. Five years later, with the crowning of a new emperor, Jews are once again returning to Rome, and that is significant. Um, Paul writes this letter within several years of the Jews' return. Gentile Christians, in that interim period for about five years, they have been governing themselves. They have been existing in their own small house churches and the return of Jewish Christians would create a um, perhaps a challenge which this might be like we're describing it as if, if you have an older brother or sister that's bossy that goes away to school to college and then comes back you've had all this freedom and now they're back and you have to live under their influence it might be something like that uh, especially because Jews believed that receiving the commandments directly from God, being entrusted with the commandments of God, made them superior to the pagan Gentiles. I mean, pagan Gentiles, their gods were kind of a mess all over the place. And the Jews had this communication from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believed that receiving the Mosaic law gave them not merely the right, but the responsibility to judge Gentiles. And Paul points out to his countrymen that they are to pass God talk onto their Gentile church mates, not law talk. Let's see what Paul says. Um, Romans chapter 3. I'll read verses 19 through 31. Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, It speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. On the, other, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Um, before we understand what the law of Moses says, and that's the law to which he refers, we need to understand who it's spoken to. What it says is the first line here, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So whatever the law says, and we'll look at what it says, what we have to understand Before we understand what it says, we need to understand to whom it is speaking. And um, what we know is that the law of Moses is part of a covenant. And we've been saying a covenant is an agreement between God and men. There's two different kinds of covenants and it's important to understand the difference between them. One is the suzerain vassal covenant and that's when a powerful king, the suzerain, makes a covenant or an agreement with the less powerful king or governor who is the vassal. The reason why the vassal would want to come into a treaty or a covenant with the suzerain is that they are a little bit vulnerable. And so they enter into an agreement with the dominant king. And there are three things that happen. There are commitments, commandments, and consequences. The commitments are promises on behalf of the dominant king, saying, if you're attacked, I will come to your aid. That's the commitment. There's commandments. There's a price that you need to pay in order to have the benefit of this type of protection. Those are the commandments. And oftentimes they were providing this, providing logs, providing gold, providing something you'd pay for the security that the suzerains promise afforded. So there's commandments, commitments, and consequences. If you ponied up the money... That you agreed on an annual basis, then you were fine. If you didn't, then there was a problem. And, and there were curses and blessings. Blessings if you complied with the, the stipulations and, uh, curses if you didn't. That's a divine, that's a suzerain vassal covenant. Now there's another kind of covenant, which is a covenant when a dominant king just looks for somebody that he wants to benefit. And there are just commitments. He just establishes, I'm going to do this for you, and well, what do I need to do? Nothing. It's just a, it's a divine grant. So, what we need to understand then, that the covenant that God makes with the Israelites from Mount Sinai is the first kind. It's a suzerain vassal covenant with commitments, commandments, consequences, and curses, and blessings. It was spoken to Jews, was given to them. Um, It really wasn't spoken to us. He didn't really make commitments to us in that covenant, and he didn't make commandments to us. It was spoken to the children of Abraham, to the sons of Israel, to was spoken to. Um, And this is what it says. It's in your worship folder. That just a summary of. What was said is, what: if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, Moses is speaking here, on behalf of God, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. So there's the blessings and now come the curses. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Again, who is God speaking this to? The children of Abraham, the sons of Israel. That's that's who he just took out of bondage to Egypt, and is establishing them and is going to move them into their own land. Why two different covenants? It's a little bit confusing, and people confuse these all the time. Many still believe that everyone exists under the old covenant, and we talk about the new covenant, and some scratch their head. You know, I heard there's a new covenant. I think it has nothing to do with communion, but there's not a bunch of clarity about it. Um, why two different covenants? What well, it says in Isaiah 55, God is not careless. He doesn't. Express something without a purpose. Here's what it says in Isaiah, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they did so yesterday, and do not return there, but we're waiting for that. Okay, might go on. But water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall be my word, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So then there's a question then. God has a purpose for both of these covenants. What's the purpose of the old? Why would he give that kind of arrangement to the Jews only to override it at the cross and present a new covenant. Uh, what's the intended influence of the law? Look what Paul says. And Paul's an expert at this stuff. He knows this up and down, inside and outside. He was a Jewish Pharisee. He was in a theocracy. The law of God is the law of the land. And Israel was a theocracy. And Paul was one of its politicians, you could see. He was to a democracy... He was to a theocracy what a senator is it to a democracy or a lawyer. That's what he did. He understood this. Listen what he says. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. We have two things that God accomplishes through the Old Covenant, through bringing this type of agreement toward the Israelites and with the Israelites. What? The first, so that every mouth may be stopped. To be stopped is kind of to understand that you're being charged with something and you understand that there's no defense. So you kind of go, anything to say, no, because you understand that you're accountable, and you're falling short. That's the purpose for the Old Covenant. It's not a grounds for boasting. And that's the thing that Paul is going to push on. To be under the Old Covenant is not a grounds for being better than somebody who doesn't have the same type of law. When the law speaks, mankind stops boasting so that every mouth may be stopped. So Mankind becomes silent. It's interesting to me. God tells us, and we'll talk about this at the seminar, entering God's rest. God tells us to approach the throne of grace speaking freely, not being silent. It's interesting to me that the influence of the old covenant is not to promote Freedom of speech. But to promote its very opposite. Silence. And that's one reason why the new covenant has to supplant the old. On this side of the cross, God does not want your silence. He wants you to approach the throne of grace... Speaking freely. And he doesn't just say that because it's nice. He says it because it's necessary. That's why covenant clarity is important. To think that God still operates by both old and new is to create spiritual schizophrenia. Part of you thinks I need to shut up, part of you thinks I need to speak freely what God wants is for us to speak freely, Um, we'll talk about that at the seminar so that's the person, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the second thing is the whole world may be held accountable to God, accountable means under the judgment of the reason the old covenant existed and that it was given to the Israelites, is that not just the Israelites, but through them, the whole world will be held accountable to God. How did God pull that off? Well, do you know any things that happened to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt? You aware, and now we're not Jews, you aware of any of the things that occurred? Plagues? The miracles? The Red Sea? What happened, not only were there events that occurred, but God made sure those events were recorded and that the records of those events would be put in a form that not just Jews would be able to have access to, everyone. Is there any place in the world that doesn't have a Bible? The Bible is translated into almost every dialect and language on earth. Why? So that everyone on the earth would know. And there's enough frightening about those stories. I ran into it in China when many, because they didn't know, and they were told things by people who weren't clear about the covenants that they were made to feel afraid, and they didn't understand the Old Testament. I'll tell you what, they sure knew about it. And there were many years that they were opposed by the government, weren't allowed to publicly have Bibles, but they sure knew what it said. Why is that? God was successful at doing what he said he was going to do. The whole world being held accountable to God. God accomplished his purpose. You know what's happening in this, uh, with all that background, what was happening is Jews were using, Jewish Christians were using the law unlawfully. What's the purpose of the law? Every mouth stopped, the whole world accountable to God. What they were using it as is a basis for bragging rights. A basis for self-righteous boasting. Here's the ten things that God wants us to do. How are you doing with that? Oh, really? Hmm. Well, I'm doing this well. I'm doing, I'm doing this and you're doing that, hmm, tough break, that's what's happening. They're using this standard as a means whereby they elevate themselves above the Gentiles and Paul is saying, no, and he's talking to Jewish Christians. You're using the law unlawfully. It's not created so that you can have bragging rights. You're using it the wrong way. That's the point. The righteousness of God is not made known through law talk. It says by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. What that means that you're not going to get an A because you do better than your neighbor. What we tend to do is use God's commandments as a basis of comparison. And we look at, look at them. Look at ourselves, we feel pretty good (laughs) compared to. And Paul says, Stop it. That's the unlawful use of the law. The law is, is an indicator of unrighteousness, not righteousness. It doesn't cure us. You know what the law does? It tells us how sick we are, that's its purpose tells us how sick we are. In that case, it's like a thermometer. I told you, I think I mentioned this last week. You've never heard a doctor say, give you a couple of thermometers and say, take these and call me in the morning. You don't take thermometers. They don't cure you. They tell you how sick you are. That's the way the law functions. That's what Paul was saying. The law reveals and produces sin. Why? It sets us up so that we can... By being aware of unrighteousness, become righteous through faith in Christ and through knowledge of the new covenant and what his death provides. That's why Jesus comes to solve the problem that was surfaced by law. The whole world saying, I don't have a shot. I'm not, I I don't steal, don't kill. Don't covet. I I don't have a leg to stand on. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of Jesus is to come and provide a gift, the gift of righteousness that doesn't rely upon your track record in keeping the commandments. Uh, the law creates the problem of righteous unrighteousness in order to express the possibility of righteousness. Look at, let's pick it up in verse 21. Here's what Paul writes. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It said the law and the prophets pointed to the coming of someone who would speak for God. It says in Deuteronomy 18, I think there's verses in your worship folder. Listen what what um, Moses, he makes a prophecy here. And it, he says, the Lord, your God, now this is the law. And what Paul said, the law and the prophets testify to what would happen in the future. This is the first mention of it in the Bible. Here's what Here's what Moses says, and it's a prediction. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. What the Israelites are doing, it's like they are going to Mount Sinai and they're like uh, Dorothy and the lion and the scarecrow. You know? <laughs> you know, when they're going to stand before the great and powerful Oz. And that's the way they feel when they're going towards Mount Sinai. It was not fun. There was thunder, and it was an assault on the senses. The smell, the sight, the sound. Moses was trembling with fear when he came to the mountain. It was frightening. It's interesting. It was frightening. And um, they said... I'll tell you what, we don't really want to hang around and talk to God a lot. Tell you what, how about if Moses talks to God and then he lets us know what God said? And God said, that sounds like a good idea. God uses mediators. He has chosen to speak in such a way that he speaks through individuals like Moses but more perfectly through his son, through Jesus. And the the people knew they needed someone to speak for them. And Paul understood that this individual that Moses talked about, who would come on the scene, we know who it is. We can look back 2,000 years and understand he was talking about Jesus. The one who would speak for God, one of the race of Israel. One of the brothers of those who are at the mountain, and that's who Jesus is. Paul is encouraging Jewish Christians to speak for God to the Gentiles, but to speak the covenant that God operates by now. God operated by this covenant until the cross. On this side of the cross, God is not operating by that covenant. He's operating by this one. Remember what Jesus said. This is the in my blood. We celebrate it once a month. This is the new covenant in my blood. This is The operating system, these are the relational ground rules by which God operates. You know what Paul is telling the Jewish Christians there? Get the covenant right. Don't boast as if God still judges us under old covenant guidelines. Jesus already has died and risen, and Paul is trying to help Jewish Christians to extend to Gentiles. The covenant that God operates by. That's what Paul is trying to do. Because, what he'll say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're righteous by faith, but unrighteous by law. Some might be closer than others. If you measure yourself by the Ten Commandments. Some of us have done things that are probably more flagrant violations. Then others, what Paul is going to say here, everyone falls short of the glory of God. The word falls short, it means to kind of to fall behind. And here's what Paul's point is. No one is in a position to say, let's say this represents the extent of covenant compliance that, that you Evidence and let's say the closer you are, the more compliant with the covenants, the commandments you are. So what that means is that uh, Dumke's, you're in trouble. If this is if this is close to compliant and if that's far, and and Larry, you're not in a real good spot either. And and and, but Randy and and you guys, yeah, boy, Taylor is really she's walking on water. (laughs) So none of us are in a place to be able to say, hey, keep up, will you? I mean, really? I mean, really? Look at what they're doing. Can you see this? The donkeys they're not even doing it. What he's saying, everyone falls short. Nobody's in a position to say, keep up with me. We are all noncompliant. And that's the purpose so that we would understand that we have a, lack of righteousness issue, and it says they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, here's what redemption means. It's really two things. Redemption means being released and being restored. Redemption means being released from slavery and being restored to sonship. That's what it means. Redemption, release, and restoration. That's what it talks about. You did not receive Romans 8. We'll see it when we get there. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. What he's saying, God didn't bring you to faith in Christ so that you would act like a slave. You've been released from slavery. You are no longer servants to a master on this side of the cross. That's what redemption means. You're restored to sonship. Restored, Yeah, because God, before the creation of the world, God wasn't a lawgiver. Now, he imposed the old covenant to be able to create a righteousness issue problem. So that he could solve it in Jesus. When did he do that? Did God determine to send Jesus when he saw people stumbling and saw the Dumkeys and they, they were way back there? And you know, Larry, he's not in real good shape either. Seeing them and say, Holy smokes, I've got to come up with another thing. And by the way, Dumkeys are a really great family and Larry's not bad either. But so, I'm, <laughs> um, so that's it. When did God? Well, his question. Why did God create the world in the first place? Why did he create people? Did he need to? Was he lonely? You know why God created the world? Because he wanted kids. He wanted more kids. Because he wanted to be a father. Before God was creator, he wanted to be father. So you were in his mind. Now, I don't know. If it, but we were, as sons and daughters, in his mind. And so when he put the Jews under this covenant where they were slaved. His purpose was to re- release from that covenant and restore to the sonship, the, the original design. Um, this is the message God gave Jews to give to Gentiles. Look what it says in Jeremiah. Here's the prophet. It says the law and the prophets. This is Jeremiah's writing at a time when Israel is going down the tubes. They are going to be taken into captivity, and it's really going to be ugly. Here's what it says. This is the covenant I will make with house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. But So, I'm going to read on. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother say, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. God gives this covenant to Jews. Let's just say that this is the new covenant. And Taylor, let's say she is one of the children of Abraham. Let's say she's the one here. So I'm going to give this to you. The reason why God established a new covenant with his firstborn, so that Taylor, when she comes to faith in Christ, will give that new covenant, give the awareness to Gentiles. That's the way it was supposed to work. He came into a covenant awareness with there was an old covenant that was changed to a new covenant with the children of Israel, with everything. The first responders to the new covenant were Jews. The apostles were all Jewish. So let Taylor represent one of the first apostles, which he, what God did then through, he took Taylor, come here, I can actually, I got to embarrass you and do something. <laughs> so here's what happened in Israel. When, Taylor put her faith in Christ. She became hated. And she had a real problem with the rest of her country because basically she was saying, uh, that, that agreement God made with us, he's changing the agreement, and what he told me is that I'm supposed to take this new agreement and I'm supposed to go and give it to Gentiles. Okay, thanks, Taylor. You can come back. Okay, yeah. Didn't quite get to the donkeys. Okay. (laughs) That's what happened. And when the Jews went to Rome, they were bringing out the old covenant. And Paul says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Comparing yourself with them on the basis of covenant compliance? That's no longer... The covenant God is operating by. This is. And so what he's saying to Jewish Christians, know the covenant that you're representing. If you're going to speak for God, you don't speak law talk. You speak God talk. That's God talk. That's what's happening in Romans. Um, Paul clearly expresses new covenant values in this passage. You know the problem is, and this is strange and kind of sad. Many see old covenant values in this passage. I'll tell you what's sad. The way the Bible is translated is wrong. And this then, this is a new version. Propitiation. Let's take the word propitiation. So it, it talks about Through the redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The word propitiation, what it means, it's like when the deities are angry and you placate the deity. It's like the deities are angry, so sometimes you have to get over their anger. That's what propitiation means. And that is the way the writers of the Bible expressed this word. Remember what Helios means? Gracious, favorable, merciful, benevolent. Here's what the word translated propitiation means. The means by which God becomes Helios. That's what it is. The means whereby God becomes Helios. And the writers of the Bible don't just translate that, but interpret it. The way the God becomes Helios is when he sees something dying. When he takes out his wrath on his son. That's propitiation. And that's not what the passage is saying. It's not what's here. It's our assumption, but it's, you say, how do you know, Mike? Well, look at the words it uses. It talks about, this just shows, this was to show, look what it says in verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance. What's forbearance? When somebody is forbearing, they don't react, they don't react. Right? Am I wrong? It's talking about God's forbearance. Not the expression of punishment, the absence of it. This passage is not saying that God expressed his righteousness by punishing his son. It's not propitiation. It's the wrong word. And people read the Bible and they think that's what it says, and it isn't. Because in His divine forbearance, it's another thing. And again, I people are smart. I think people have this view in their mind, and they express the view and put it into the Bible. But like for here, he passed over former sins, passed over former sins. You know what the verse just really says? In his forbearance, he passed over sins, passed them over. And what the text puts in is one word. In his forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Do you understand the difference? He had passed over former sins until when? Until Christ was on the cross and then he let it go. Then he vented and, and killed his son. So now what the passage is saying how does God show his righteousness at the present time? By becoming Helios, forbearance, tolerance, passing over sins. Judgment doesn't evidence the righteousness of God. Tolerance does. That's what he wants with the Jewish Christians that are in Rome. Don't judge these people. Be tolerant of them. Know how long it took. Don't judge them. Don't use the commandments as a basis for being better than them, making them feel ashamed. Be tolerant, be forbearing, pass over sins, just like God did. That's the point of this passage. And the way it's turned, this passage is used to teach that God punished his son, and it is not what the passage is teaching, in my opinion. There's an article in here. I don't think I'm going to read it. Am I going to read it? Am I going to read it? Yeah, I'm going to read it. I just, uh, I just want to tack this down. Is God bloodthirsty? It's in under for the case for grace. Is God bloodthirsty? Imagine God frowning. Now, imagine him smiling. A sacrifice of atonement is the reason for the smile. It is the means by which God's favor is restored. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus' mission on this planet was to function as a sacrifice of atonement. Because of what he accomplished, God the Father smiles. His favor is restored. Now, if you know anything about sacrifices, this might raise some disturbing questions about God the Father. Animals used as sacrifices were slaughtered. Are we to conclude that God looks at an animal bleeding to death and then smiles? This question becomes even more disturbing when we plug Jesus Christ into the equation. When he becomes the sacrifice of atonement, did God the Father watch his son die in order to exhaust his wrath against sin? Did God the Father punish sin by punishing Jesus? We read about God's forbearance in the passage. Forbearance means self-restraint. It's the opposite of God blowing his top. Someone who demonstrates forbearance contains anger and wrath. The cross is not a place where God's anger and wrath were unleashed. The cross is a demonstration of God's forbearance, a place where God's anger and wrath were restrained. We read that God had left The sins committed beforehand unpunished. This, This translation, the New International Version, suggests that God saved up the wrath that had been building because of prior human sin and poured it out on Christ. However, another translation offers this translation. In the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. This paints a completely different picture. It suggests that God passed over sins on the cross. It suggests that God demonstrated self-restraint at the cross. He suggests that the cross is a place where sin went unpunished. This image fits in better with Judaism, the religion from which Christianity was birthed. And I'll let you, I think I'm going to let you read the rest of that if you care to. Uh, at the end of the article, um, it asks a question. Uh, God demonstrate his forbearance on the day Jesus died. But what about the savage beating he took? What about the agonizing ordeal on the cross? What about his death? He certainly didn't walk away from the cross unharmed. God the Father did not punish Jesus on the cross. Sinful men did. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus is our scapegoat. His blood is not to be understood as life taken in anger. His blood is not to be understood as life given in love. And if you read the other part of the article, you'll get that. Okay, let's, let's finish up a couple of things. Three points of application. Number one, how do we use the law lawfully? So how do we relate to the Ten Commandments? We don't use them as a basis for becoming acceptable to God. That comes through faith in Christ. Faith that God is operating. Whoop. Whoop. (laughs) Now I did it. Get back to that one, John. Abby, it'll take me probably the next 20, 30 minutes to get past. I have three slides, and it's Thank you. Um, it's not uh, the cross, we are in a divine grant on this side of the cross. Um, how do we use the lawful law lawfully? We don't boast. About how much better we are based on covenant compliance, commandment compliance than other people are. Again, that's not the point. It's not the purpose. Um, We put the law in its proper place. We uphold the law. We don't detonate the law. We uphold it. You know what to uphold means? It's to put it in its right place. It's to stand it up. We we put the law in its place. What is the law? You know what the law? You know where it belongs. It doesn't belong in the cure drawer. It belongs in the examination drawer. It's the thing we use to determine how sick we are. That's the way the law functions. It's not a cure. It's a diagnostic tool. Uh, so we, we use it that way. Application, um, God wants us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. We'll talk about this. There's a couple of things that happen. Even in the wilderness... In the first year, I'm going to read two passages, and then I'm I'm, I'm going to close this up. Um, God's goal in the wilderness in the first year when they were at this place and the people were struggling with what God was asking of them, here's what it says. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock. I want you to remember what God says. Right? Strike the rock. And water will come out of it. What did he tell Moses to do? Hit the rock. Okay, That's in the first year. Let's let 38 years go by. They are... Back at the same place having wandered around now they're back in the same place I want you to listen here's what happens a similar thing the Lord said to Moses take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together (laughs) speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock with his step. Wait a minute. He wasn't supposed to do that, was he? Do you know what God wanted to teach them in the wilderness? To speak to the rock. Do you know what God wants us to know? He wants us, he really does, he wants us to approach the throne of grace speaking freely. This covenant will not allow us to speak freely. It causes us to shut our mouth. Do you know why God created a different covenant? Because he wants you to learn to talk to him. Because that's what happens between a son, a daughter, and a father. Judgment is what happens between a slave and a master. God does not see himself as your master and you as his slave. He wants you to speak to him and that's what we'll talk about in entering God's rest. It's important that we learn to talk to him because that's what a relationship is like. And again, you're saying, Mike, I don't do that very well. I get that. But we're going to continue to think about who God is and what covenant he operates by. And over time, we'll become a little more comfortable and a little more comfortable in learning to speak to him because that's what he wants. The old covenant shuts our mouth. And the new covenant, if we understand it, opens it. We're going to close with a song. Brett, come on up. Team Taylor and Mark. Father, thank you for your purposes and your promises that you are wise and good. You were eternally Father. You created the world and you inserted after the divine grant to Abraham a temporary measure that was intended to raise the reveal and, and make unrighteousness an issue. And then you did that so that you could send your son and solve it. That's not a mistake. It's it's something you determined to do all along. It was never your purpose that we could become righteous by complying with commandments. Now, you do want us to comply, but that compliance needs to be a result of receiving life, not the means whereby we get life. You would have us to understand that we can experience eternal existence because of what Jesus has done for us, apart from how we comply with your commands. Now, when that happens, and when we understand that and are clear about it, our heart changes, and we find ourselves being open with you, talking with you, presenting our requests. This is challenging for us, but as we learn, your peace, which... Passes all understanding, guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We we speak with confidence and we find mercy and grace to help in time of need. All this stuff comes as we learn to speak with you, because we know that you want us to and you welcome us. Pray that you'd continue to help us to understand these things so that we could become Christ like. In whose name we pray. Amen.